morning. Um, as Matt said, I did my undergrad at Roberts, but when I started, I didn't actually start in any sort of biblical studies or theology degree. I actually started with chemistry. And this makes a lot of sense because I think very much like a scientist. I observe and I notice things and I analyze and I hypothesize. And I'm very curious, never stop asking questions because at the end of the day, I want to know how the world works. And I realized that like, you can never really know how the world works, but I wanted to try. And the world around me didn't make a lot of sense and it seemed very chaotic. And so by studying and observing and un trying to understand how it worked, I could then try to bring peace into the disorder that seem was seeming around me. And I think that this kind of tracks with science in general. Um, there's laws of nature that govern the way that the world functions. Um, and one of these laws is called the second law of thermodynamics, which deals with this idea of entropy. And essentially entropy is a measure of chaos. So you, it's, it's chaos. And um, the second law says that the entropy of an isolated system cannot decrease over time and that these systems always spontaneously evolve toward thermodynamic equilibrium, which is the state with the most chaos. So basically, this law says that the world trends toward chaos. Chaos is natural. It takes work in order to produce peace and produce order. And I think if we think about this, it makes sense intuitively. Um, if you think about snow, for instance, I don't know, Rochester got snow this past week, I heard, which is like not that weird because it's Rochester, but also it's the middle of April, so that's a little weird. Um, but if you look at the snow and you, you're walking outside in the snow, sometimes you'll see like snowmen on the ground or you'll see that like snow angels have been built. But the snow didn't like naturally fall into these ordered patterns of snowmen and snow angels. Somebody had to do the work to get the snow there because the snow quite literally falls wherever the wind blows. And so I think that, that this idea of, you know, being surrounded by chaos makes a lot of sense. And I think it makes sense with, you know, the beginning of creation when we get this image of there being, you know, darkness and water and chaos, and then God speaks, God does work, and brings order to that chaos. Um, if you take, for example, just at the most basic level, if you take the periodic table, every, this outlines all the elements that exist in our world, and elements are the simplest chemical substance that exist. And so everything that exists in the world is made up of some combination of these elements. And if we look, you can start to see patterns. You can see patterns in the numbers and patterns in the colors. And if you, you know, if you know what the periodic table, you can see other patterns of electronegativity and, you know, atomic radius and things like that. But there's these patterns, there's order, and it, it brings peace to the chaos. So if you break the chaos down into its simplest parts, it makes, it produces peace. Um, and so I think that, for me, scripture functions in much the same way. We can break it down into its basic parts. We can study, we can ask questions, we can observe, we can find patterns. We can break it down to its most basic parts and seek to understand something. We can't understand God fully, so we can't you know, read it and seek to understand God fully because God can never be fully understood, but we can understand parts of God's character and parts of his relationship with us and our relationship with him. And we can see, like for me, it makes God feel a lot closer to me. And so when I was reading this passage, immediately the phrase, peace be with you, that is repeated three times, jumped out at me. 
And it's interesting because I've, I don't know if I've ever noticed it before. I've read this passage many times. I've heard it preached on many times. I've memorized it. I've quoted it. And for some reason, it never jumped out at me, at least in such a way where I took the time to really analyze it. And so I wondered this time, like, why that was happening. So I broke it down into the most basic parts, and I realized that peace be with you when John writes this. It's intentional. Everything that John writes, everything that any of the biblical authors write is intentional. Because for John, he's writing a gospel, and a gospel tells a story. It's a narrative. But like any good storyteller, he's not just trying to tell a story, trying to say, you know, what, something about history or something about, like, the history and biography of Christ, but he's also trying to prove a point. He's trying to get his readers to understand something. And so, in this case, he's trying to get us to understand something about God's peace. And I think that there are three kind of main takeaways um, that correlate to the three, three ideas about peace. So, the first one is that peace calms fear. And I think on the surface, this one's pretty obvious. Um, If you look just in verse 19, the disciples are all together, and it says that they're locked in a room because they're afraid, which makes a lot of sense because their world has descended into chaos. This Jesus, who they've spent a majority of the past few years with, has, or so they thought, was supposed to be somebody great. And he was supposed to do all these great things, and Then he died, which wasn't what they expected. It didn't really make sense. It didn't fit with how they understood the world. And then he was buried in this tomb, and now he's no longer in the tomb, and they don't really know what's going on. They still don't understand. Um, And so for the disciples, either they're in the middle of some divine miracle or some elaborate prank, but like either way, it's not a safe situation for them to be in. So they're rightfully so, they're afraid. But they lock themselves in this room and then Christ appears to them and he reveals himself to them and he says, peace be with you. And he shows them the holes in his wrists and in his side and he says, and he calms their fear because peace calms fear. And then the second point is that peace comes with the spirit. So when, after Christ calms the disciples' initial fear, he then again says, peace be with you. And we kind of get this image in the Gospels that the disciples never quite understand what's happening until after the resurrection, like way after the resurrection. But I imagine that this is the first moment where the light bulbs start to go off. I don't think it's the moment that they understand everything, but the light bulbs start to go off. And certainly John is trying to remind his readers of certain times and have light bulbs start to go off in our mind as well. Um, and so you think about the times in previous chapters when Jesus was talking about peace and he was mentioning peace. Um, one of which happens in John fourteen twenty seven, when Jesus says, peace, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then again in chapter 16, verse 33, when he says, I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, And so the readers are reminded of these times when Christ talks about peace. And in chapter 14, when he is mentioning peace, that's also when he promises the Holy Spirit. He promises the Comforter to come to his disciples. 
And then in chapter 16, he's alluding to his death and his resurrection and his eventual return to the Father. And so now he's standing in front of them after his resurrection, and he says, peace be with you again. And he breathes on them, and then he promises them the Holy Spirit. And then he sends them out into the world in the same way that his Father has sent him. So I don't know how you hear from the Spirit necessarily, but for me, I found that it is often in moments of inexplicable peace. In fact, <laughs> I was in the middle of a life, kind of life-changing decision recently in terms of I had to decide where I wanted to go to seminary and whether or not I wanted to come to Seattle and where else I wanted to go. And I, was, I had all these voices, you know, internal and external, that I felt were pulling me a bunch of different directions and I didn't know like, if God was calling me somewhere specific, and if he was, like, where was that? And so I was reaching out and talking to, you know, friends, pastors, mentors, and one of them said to me, she asked, like, what, where do you feel the most peace? Because that's often how we hear from the Holy Spirit, just inexplicable peace. And again, I don't think that this is necessarily true for everybody and doesn't have to be true every time, but it makes sense because God's not the God of chaos. He's the God of peace. So it would make sense that he would speak to us through his spirit, through peace. Um, But not only does he speak to us through his spirit and peace, but also when he gives us this peace, it's always complete. So that brings us to the third point, which is that God's peace is complete. So in between Christ appearing to the other disciples and Christ appearing to Thomas, we get this exchange, this conversation happening, and, you know, the disciples say, we've seen the Lord, and Thomas says, I don't, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Like, I don't believe unless I see with my own eyes. And that's kind of the moment where he gets his nickname, and we kind of remember him for, we kind of remember him as Doubting Thomas. And I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that's a little bit unfair, because he did just ask for the same proof that the disciples already had. So I think that, you know, he's looking for proof. Um, But also, I think that it's hard to remember him for this one moment, but it's also because we don't hear a lot about him. We don't get a good picture of who Thomas is necessarily. I mean, you know, we get a pretty good picture of Peter. We get a pretty good picture of Judas. Even John in his own gospel gives himself some airtime. But Thomas really doesn't have any, except for in John. And so when we look at the other instances where we hear Thomas speaking and we see him acting, um, we can kind of get a better understanding of who he is. And so in chapter 14, we get this picture of Jesus talking to his disciples. And this is the beginning of like a really long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. So I imagine that they're, how I pictured in my head is like they're sitting in a classroom and Jesus is like standing in front of them. He's trying to like talk to them and teach them. And they're all just like looking around when he says, you know, I'm going to the father in my father's house. There are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he says, I know, you know, the way to where I'm going. And imagine they're looking around at each other like, we don't have any idea what he's talking about, but like, I'm not going to tell him I'm confused. Are you going to tell him you're confused? Like, who's going to tell him? And then finally, like, Thomas pipes up and says what I think that they're all thinking. Um, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Um, and I don't think that this question stems from a place of wanting to question just for the sake of questioning or doubting. I think this stems from a genuine place of, curiosity. He really just wants to understand. He wants to understand what Jesus is talking about. And so then in chapter 11, back in chapter 11, we see that Jesus hears the news that Lazarus has died. 
and he says, well, we have to go to Judea. And his disciples, you know, tell him, Rabbi, like, you can't go back there. Last time we were there, they tried to stone you. Like, don't, that's probably not a great idea. And then Jesus says, no, we have to go so that I can raise Lazarus from the dead and so that you can believe. And then at the end, Thomas, Thomas says to the other disciples, he looks at them and he says, well, let us also go that we may die with him. And I don't think in this moment that Thomas quite realizes how true those words would be. But nonetheless, it shows that he's willing to follow Christ to death, if that's what it takes. And so we don't know for sure what he's doing the first time that the disciples are together. But based on this evidence, I'd like to imagine that he was trying to figure out what was going on. He was, you know, out and about living his life the best he could, given the situation, and trying to figure out what was happening. Um, And so, I mean, at the end of the day, we don't know for sure. It's very possible that he was you know, out and about just getting food or he forgot to check his email and didn't get the memo that they were supposed to meet. I don't know. But I do know that what he wasn't doing and he wasn't hiding in fear. So he may have doubted, but he wasn't afraid. Regardless of this doubt, though, Christ still revealed himself to Thomas. He still appeared in front of him and said, peace be with you. And so then, this is an interesting This brings us to an interesting point because Jesus stands in front of Thomas and he shows them the holes in his wrists and the holes in his side. And then Thomas has this interesting confession of faith that is perhaps deeper and more personal and more shows a better understanding of Christ's identity than than the confession of the other disciples. And I think I picture this as like the ultimate light bulb moment where Thomas has put the pieces together and now the other disciples can put all of the pieces together and they get it. Because Thomas says, my Lord and my God. When the other disciples recognized Jesus, John says that they rejoiced because they had seen the Lord. But here Thomas recognizes him as not just the Lord, but as the Lord for him. My Lord. Personal. Personal Lord. But then, also, he recognizes him as God. He says, my Lord and my God. So for Thomas, he realizes, I think in this moment, that Jesus isn't just sent from God, but he is himself God. And so the third time that Jesus repeats, peace be with you, it comes with this deep personal confession of faith that is perhaps the most, the moment where, you know, everybody starts to kind of put the pieces together. And and I don't think that, again, I don't think that this was accidental because in scripture, when the number three is used, it's often used to demonstrate, it symbolizes completeness or like divine wholeness. Um, and so with this peace be with you comes not only a confession of personal confession of faith, but it also comes with an understanding that our faith comes our peace comes with our faith and that God's peace is always complete. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I could use some of this complete peace. Um, I have, I, I eventually did change my major in undergrad and I went from you know, chemistry to now this like, hybrid degree that's chemistry and biblical studies and math all in one. And so I have this like, background in all of these things and I still wake up every day and I am 
probably more confused about what's going on than I was the day before because the science seems to like constantly be changing and like everybody who's ever seen one episode of Grey's Anatomy is suddenly like some experienced medical professional but even the experienced medical professionals have no idea what to do and the statistics are just in general misleading on the surface if you don't know what you're looking at but if you do know what you're looking at and you break them down nobody can agree on the numbers and nobody can agree if the numbers are even significant and I don't know if you've been on social media recently I have I regret that decision every day but it's crazy it's social media is a mess right now because there's especially Christians there are people everywhere giving us theories about why this is happening and how God has a role to play in this and is God in, like is God responsible for this are we responsible for this I have somebody right now trying to convince me that this is a sign of the end of the world and you know Christ is going to return within the next 10 years because obviously so I don't really know what to do with any of this information. I have my own ideas and my own theories about what's happening, but I can't say anything with certainty. But what I can say with certainty is that God is always present. He's always present in this situation, and he's always reminding us of his peace. And so instead of letting the uncertainty and the fear consume me, I've been trying to remember this, and I've been trying to remember times when I felt God's peace. And I've been trying to search for that peace. And God has already done the hard work of bringing peace to the world, of bringing peace to the chaos. I just need to put in a little bit of extra work myself to remember and to feel this peace. So I think I've been sitting around recently and I've been just reflecting on the whole process to get to Seattle, for instance. And I see all the times throughout this process that I just felt God's peace or that even if I didn't realize it in the moment, God was revealing himself to me. He was standing in front of me and saying, peace be with you. He was calming my fears. He was calming my doubts, calming my anxiety, even if I didn't realize it in the moment. And I've also been trying to find peace kind of in the here and now, which has been hard. Um, I don't really like silence. I always have like something going on like I always have something playing in the background music Netflix my own thoughts whatever but I've been forcing myself to sit in this awkward and uncomfortable silence for just a few minutes a day and just try to feel God's peace try to listen listen for God's peace um but I think so I've been putting I've been putting in a little bit extra effort recently and I've, I've seen God show up um I've seen it in you know when I've read scripture I've seen it when I've talked to friends sitting in class even, which is supposed to be super stressful, but, you know, I'm just sitting there and I feel this peace. And I, you know, I don't know how this looks like for everybody. I don't know what this searching looks like for everybody because I think it's different for everybody. I can't stand up here and tell you this is how you find God's peace because ultimately there's not a checklist. And it looks different for everybody. And I'm far from perfect at it, so I shouldn't even be allowed to offer you advice. But... I think that I'm working on it, and I think that we all can find ways to find God's peace in this time. And so, as is the normal here, I have some discussion questions that I think will help us to reflect on God's peace and will help us to find ways to live into God's peace. And so you can talk about these with people you're with or reflect on them by yourself. But the first one says, how have the circumstances you are in and, what, and who you are as a person 
impacted your ability to feel God's peace? How have you felt God's peace either now or in the past? And what extra work might you need to do in order to fully live in God's complete peace? And so I want you to remember that God is always present and revealing himself, and that his complete peace given through the Spirit calms fear and doubt. Now I want to pray for you all. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your peace and reminding us of your presence and revealing yourself to us in unexpected ways. And I just pray that as we go about the week that we can find ways to find your peace amidst the seeming chaos around us and that you'll just continue to reveal yourself to us in new and different and exciting ways and that your peace will just wash over us and your spirit will just be with us and will feel his presence. And I pray that we also can not only feel his peace, but that we can be vehicles and instruments of your peace to those around us. In your name we pray. Amen.